wow, that must be so upsetting that your balloon has burst. What can I do to help you through this moment? And it was really a couple of phrases that stood out to me and I took them home with me and I wrote them down, literally scribbled them down on a piece of paper, put them in my back pocket and I started to pull them out occasionally. And I would read off this bit of paper. You know, I was no pro at this stage. I would read off a bit of paper and my kids would look at me like, what is she doing? What is, what is this woman doing? And I started to notice a response from them that was radically different than the response I was getting with the other language and phrases I was using. Um, and so I guess it just kind of built from there. And then about four or five months into practicing some of these phrases on a daily basis, it suddenly clicked that what I was really learning was a new language. Hey, welcome back to Normalize the Conversation. Today, I am here with Ali, the founder of Fizzy Kids. Ali is a mom who wants to help other moms develop a parenting language that works best for their family. You can connect with Ali on Instagram at the Fizzy Kids. Ali, thank you so much for the work that you are doing and for joining me today. How are you really? Oh, that's a great question, isn't it? Uh, I don't think we take it seriously enough when people ask us that question, but no, I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay today, genuinely okay. I've got much better at saying when I'm not okay, which I think, you know, just to start us off down that road of a parenting language we have with our kids, um, actually, I want them to hear me say I'm not okay some days. Um, you know, I don't want them to feel pressured into having to be okay every day. And I think uh, the, the way we model those kind of responses to really just basic questions like that is, is key. But no, today I'm doing pretty well, although we do have a new puppy who is taking up a lot of my energy, um, but, uh, but in a good way. So I'm tired, but happy. Thank you for being so honest. And it's so true that with their kids, it's so important that they know that it's okay to not be okay. When we're constantly saying we're good, we're okay, we're fine. When they're not feeling that way, they think that they're the only ones and that they're alone and that it's not normal when it is completely normal. We all have better days sometimes and we all have bad days sometimes and that's okay. So I love that you have that communication with your kids and you're providing that support and letting them know that that's okay and congratulations on the new puppy there is nothing better than a new puppy he's crazy he's like my third fizzy kid now or actually my fourth if you include my husband as well so um but he is he's fitting in very nicely he is he's really playing the part of an extra fizzy kid (laughs) I love that so let's jump in Tell me about Fizzy Kids. What is a Fizzy Kid and what inspired you to start Fizzy Kids? Oh, thank you, Fran. Um, Yeah, so Fizzy Kids was set up a couple of years ago by me as a direct result of the parenting experiences that I was having with my kids at the time. And I like to describe a Fizzy Kid as any child who has additional special or it might just be higher emotional needs. So your child may have a diagnosis of uh, ADHD or autism or dyslexia, uh, but equally they might be a highly sensitive child or they might be dealing with 
big, big emotional difficulties because maybe they've been adopted or fostered or been through some kind of adverse childhood experience. So I wanted to cover a really broad spectrum of children, but we're talking about one in five children here, Fran. You know, 20% of children have these additional needs. And I think it's really important that we, that, we, that we remember that because it's easy to just get lost in statistics and figures, but that is literally millions of children and it affects millions of families. And really what you see with those kids, for whatever reason they are fizzy, they will be struggling to regulate their emotions. And because of that, they will be displaying big, sometimes very challenging behaviors towards their parents, carers, teachers, whoever it might be. So I, I, uh, I started Fizzy Kids from a very low point. I was sitting in the um, doctor's surgery, ready to accept a prescription of antidepressants. Uh, I was depressed, I was low, I was angry, I was frustrated. I, I did not know how to hold my family together. I, it felt like we were crumbling apart. Um, and it really took me to get that low, which is a terrible thing to think, but it took me to get that low in order to make some quite drastic changes to how we went about parenting our children. And really from that point onwards, I just started on this journey towards learning a new way to interact and communicate with my kids who have these additional needs. And that's really what I want to share with as many people as possible now in order to help to help them. That is a beautiful pain to purpose story. And <laughs> it sounds like you went through so much with trying to learn the best way to care for your family and to create that communication. And I think it's so common that we wait until we are at our lowest to make those changes, to realize we even have to make those changes. And there are so many people who don't know where to start or what to do. And for you to figure it out for yourself and then want to help others as well is just so incredible. Uh, well, that's really kind of you to say, Fran, thank you. I, I mean, I will be honest. I think to start with, there was no thought of helping others because I, I knew I just had to help myself. And isn't that a good lesson in itself that when you're in a good place, it's so much easier to help others because you've got the energy and you you feel self-confident and, you know, you, you have this kind of power and energy that you can then go out and share with others. But I'll be really frank with you. For a while, I didn't have that. I, I had to just bring it back down to us, our little, you know, four people in our family um, who really needed every ounce of my energy in order to hold us together and bring us together. And, um, you know, I, I think it is, it, it, it's always important to remember that day for me, sitting in that doctor's surgery and bring it back to that moment. You know, they say you should never look back in, apart from to see how far you've come. And, and that is, that was my kind of starting point. That was, that was where I've come from. And what's been lovely is not just to think about it from my own personal perspective, but to see the journey that the children have been on too. And for any parents and carers out there who have kids with special or additional or emotional needs, they will get that. You know, they, they will have been somewhere near that place that I was, maybe lower, uh, maybe not quite so low, but it is a Herculean task 
looking after children with these additional needs, even more so than just your standing parenting. And, you know, I, I, I just would urge any parents or kids who have parents listening to this to, to really be compassionate towards themselves. Um, but that in itself is something that we have to learn how to do, right? Exactly. And when a kid is struggling and they don't know how to communicate, when a parent is struggling and they don't know how to communicate, it creates this barrier where no one is able to fully be themselves and understand each other, have those important conversations and support each other. And especially as a parent, as a mother, a lot of the weight falls on your shoulders. And it sounds like you were under so much pressure. And you said that that moment was when you were about to start antidepressants and get that prescription. But what were you like completely feeling in that moment that made you realize maybe it's the communication and how we are talking to our children? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Fran. So I, I did have a light bulb moment around that, but it was probably about four or five months after that moment. So I started at that point, I, I, well, first of all, I took myself away. I extracted myself from the family for 48 hours. I said to my husband, I, I've got to go. I have got to just walk away from all of this. So I went away and I slept and I ate chocolate and I drank red wine and I cried and I watched movies. <laughs> um, but, but one thing I did start to do was read this book. And it's a fantastic book. It's called Why Can't My Child Behave? And it's written by a child psychologist, fantastic lady. Um, and she started really kind of opening up my eyes to the reasons behind my children's behaviours. So I started to realise that they were not directed personally towards me. These are my children's feelings. Sure, they were inducing feelings and emotions in me, but it was my children's feelings that they were struggling with so much. So I started to be able to kind of look beyond the behavior, if you like. And then in this book, she also starts to use phrases. And I read these phrases out and Fran, this might make you laugh and I don't mean it in any kind of negative way, but I read them and I was like, oh, this all sounds very kind of, you know, American and therapy kind of based. <laughs> Honestly, that was my first reaction. So you're going to think, God, who is this woman from Britain saying this stuff? But honestly, that's what I thought. I was like, who speaks to their children in this way? What is this kind of stuff? So I was really, um, I was really um, unsure about it, uncertain about it. And because I was just alone on my own, I started saying these phrases out loud. I was like, they sound so weird. This is just, you know, I'm used to saying, don't you talk to me like that. Or, you know, for goodness sake, pull yourself together. You know, it's only a burst balloon. So I was just so used to kind of talking to my children in quite a short, sharp, um, kind of directive way. And all of a sudden, this person in this book was telling me to say things like, wow, that must be so upsetting that your balloon has burst what can I do to help you through this moment? And it was really a couple of phrases that stood out to me and I took them home with me and I wrote them down, literally scribbled them down on a piece of paper, put them in my back pocket. 
and I started to pull them out occasionally. And I would read off this bit of paper. You know, I was no pro at this stage. I would read off a bit of paper and my kids would look at me like, what is she doing? What is, what is this woman doing? And I started to notice a response from them that was radically different than the response I was getting with the other language and phrases I was using. Um, and so I guess it just kind of built from there. And then about four or five months into practicing some of these phrases on a daily basis, it suddenly clicked that what I was really learning was a new language. It was a bit like learning French or Spanish or German. You know, they say you learn a language, learn a new language and it changes your thoughts. And, and really the, these phrases and these words and this language was changing the way I was thinking about the relationship I had with my kids. And you could see the response it was having. You know, it was obvious. That is incredible. And how can I support you is such a powerful phrase. And it's so common, especially with kids when they react in kind of a way that we see dramatic, like the balloon burst thing. To us, that seems so silly. Like, why are you crying? But in reality, that is so important to them. And we are so quick to just invalidate them. And it's not because we want to invalidate them. It's because that's kind of how we're taught. When our parents say it to us, we take that in and then it cycles. And there is no real guide to being a parent and what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. So it becomes really difficult. Is this how I discipline? Am I supposed to be focused on discipline? Am I supposed to be focused on being their friend? How do I balance that line and where to be? And when you change that conversation from grow up, stop crying, get over it to how can I support you? This is really hard time for you. And I understand that. And I'm here for you. Letting the kids know that it's okay to cry. It's okay to be upset. It's okay to feel. And someone's there to support me. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think what's, um, what's critical here is that that 20% of children who have these additional needs you know, it, there's a horribly high proportion of those kids who go on to have mental health issues. You know, that, that, those are the stats. We, we can't shy away from those stats. So everything that we can do with these kids at an early age to accept their feelings, accept their behaviours and empathise with them is only going to build their ability to be resilient, confident grown-ups. You know, and, and that is that's the end game. And I think I think when you've when you've got kids with additional needs, you really have to see the long game. You, it is a marathon, not a sprint. Um, you know, these children may not uh, grasp academic concepts so early on because they struggle so much to learn things. They might be struggling with sport because their coordination is taking longer to develop. They might be struggling with friendships and relationships because they can barely contain their own emotions, let alone deal with another child's emotions. So you're really, you know, helping to build a long term resilience and emotional strength in these children. And, and that is what is so critical. 
Um, you know, and I, I, you don't like to be doom and gloom about it, but the fact of the matter is vulnerable children are much more likely to grow up into vulnerable adults. So I think we have to accept that as a society and we've got to do something about it. You know, we, I, I think um, what I hear a lot when I, when I talk about this language and this different way of parenting is people who are maybe brought up in a very kind of Victorian way saying, oh, it's just namby, you're namby-pambying to them. Oh, you know, it's just, you know, it's just silly and it's the, the naughties way of parenting and, you know, generation X, Y, Z, you know, oh, it's all so easy for them. Well, that is one viewpoint, but it is not the only viewpoint, you know. Surely, the way I like to think about it is that as a, as a species, as a human species, we are developing. We are developing all of the time. You know, we have come out of 150 years of industrialization, world wars, you know, terrible kind of difficulties as a population. We have many, many traumatized people as a result of these things happening. Intergenerational trauma as well, which is even harder to break. And for those of you listening who may be adopted or fostered or who are parents with adoptive or fostered kids, you will sit at the cold front of that because it is often children from families with intergenerational trauma who are in the care system. And these children need a radically different approach to parenting and caring for them. You know, we have to take account of their trauma. They are not kids who can respond to rewards or threats or consequences because they do not have the ability to regulate or modify their behavior because of a threat or a consequence or a reward. They just, they don't have that ability. It's a, it's a can't, not a won't. You know, and it's very easy to see these children as, as naughty you know, or as the ones who are always getting into trouble, or they don't say the right things, or they're unkind, or they're bullies. But really, we have to start looking beyond that, and asking what is at the root of those behaviors. Exactly. You brought up so many amazing points. First of all, children who do grow up in vulnerable homes, or who are a vulnerable child, are a lot more likely to deal with a mental health issue or condition or symptoms later on. And we assume that children are resilient. But if so many children are resilient, why are so many adults in therapy? That's such an important thing to realize, as well as the fact, at least in the U.S., I know that suicide is the second leading cause of death from ages 10 to 24. We have to reframe the way that we are talking to children because they are struggling. They are genuinely struggling, even if we don't see it, even if we don't realize it, even if it seems like what they're upset about is something small in the grand scheme of things. Maybe it is to us, but to them, that's their whole world. And it's so important to realize that and start providing that support. And then you went into generational trauma. And that is a huge piece because like you said, in the past 150 years, so much has changed. A lot of our grandparents were in World War II or were born during that time. And that is a lot of trauma. And then they raised kids with that trauma that they were carrying. And now those kids inherited that generational trauma. And it's continuing a cycle because 
mental health treatment is so inaccessible because it's so hard to get in with the therapist. It, there's this giant stigma. A lot of people don't get the help or support that they deserve. They might not even realize that they have trauma. So then raising kids, we raise them the same way that we were raised. And it's that continuous cycle of invalidation. And again, it's not something that we choose to do. It's just what we're taught and what we're used to. So that generational trauma is continuing. And we're just assuming that they're resilient and that the way we're raising them is making them more resilient. But instead, it's almost breaking them because they have to hold everything inside until one day it comes out in a very difficult way. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think it's um, it's very important. You know, I'm, I'm talking from a parental point of view, but I have children who are eight and 10 and who have already had mental health breakdowns as a result of their adverse childhood experiences that they suffered and then the kind of the demands that society places on them both in an educational system and in a kind of social setting too. So, you know, and, and when you are when you are a parent watching a child going through a mental health issue, it is debilitating. It is absolutely mind-blowingly painful to see and watch them dealing with that and you know I think we we have to recognize that as well so I agree with you Fran I think accessing access to timely therapy is critical and the problem is is that you don't generally pick up the phone to a therapist when things are going well right you know I'm thinking of my son just six months ago who post-covid had a massive breakdown as a result of having to go back to school full-time again and we needed help and we needed help right then and you pick up the phone to a psychologist or a psychiatrist and they're like well I have a four or five month waiting list yeah (laughs) you know so so timely access to therapy is critical but I also think that you know, the, the, whilst we're providing access to therapy to the children, it is so important for us to provide a support network to parents whose children are going through that. Because what I've noticed is that as the parents, you're often the last to fall. So you hold it together and you hold it together. And particularly with all the kind of therapeutic parenting training that I've had and the language that I use, Um, You know, I work so hard during those times to to do what I can to support my kids. And then I always notice two or three months down the line, I literally drop half dead. I mean, you know, that that, that is no joke. Back in kind of May this year, I, I had to stop everything. I was crying nonstop and I couldn't concentrate on my work. And I felt I was kind of had really high anxiety. I had a couple of panic attacks where I was extremely short of breath. And but that but by then the kids and everyone else has started to get better. <laughs> you know, so so when we when we're thinking about how can we help kids, of course there's the proactive piece, isn't there? There's how we're talking to them, how we're developing that resilience, both as their parents, teachers, sports coaches, whatever. But then there is also that reactive help that's needed, you know, timely access to therapy for the kids, 
and a way to really put in place some seriously good scaffolding around the family whilst they're going through that so that you don't get to the end of it and actually you know child's therapy has moved on but actually the parent's therapy then has to start um so I just wanted to kind of make make that point because I I quite often speak to parents with blocked care issues or who have basically having emotional breakdowns because of the support they've been providing their kids who've also had mental health breakdowns. It is really hard, like you said, as a parent to watch your kid fall apart and not know how to help them and to feel helpless because there's only so much you can do. And I know for me, my parents had no idea what to do. When I ended up in a psych ward, they felt like it was their fault and they didn't know how to support me and what could they have done differently. And they just felt broken and it took a massive toll on them. And parents need that same support that they give to their kids, that they give to their loved ones, because you can't pour from an empty cup when you take everything inside of you and you give it to everyone else, you will fall apart. And to know that you also deserve support and being able to recognize that going to get therapy for yourself and getting that support does not make you a weak parent or does not make you a bad parent. It helps you be the best parent that you can be because when you're falling apart, how can you be there for your kids? Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, I guess, I guess as I'm maturing this idea around a parenting language, what's becoming really clear is that the language I use with my kids is only one piece of the puzzle. And actually another really big and important piece of the puzzle is the language I use to myself and my husband and the people around me as well. And, you know, I think whilst I got better quite quickly at the language I was using with my children at, you know, accepting and empathizing, validating their feelings, working with them, offering more support, you know, my, my, my shoutiness disappeared, my yelling disappeared, um, my traditional kind of disciplining disappeared because it, it no longer became useful. Um, but what took a lot longer was changing my internal voice, changing the way I spoke to myself. And uh, just to share, Fran, a couple of things that I've learned over the years around this. Firstly, is I think it's really important as parents to learn to critique yourself rather than criticize yourself so we will always do things wrong you know I even me with all my training and learning I have days when I shout I swear (laughs) I shame you know so it's we're humans right we're we're imperfect um but I am much better now at being able to saying okay that happened it wasn't great what can I do differently next time rather than criticizing myself going god I'm so stupid I hate myself how could I do that or say that to my kids you know that that is actually a really unhelpful thing to do to myself so critique not criticize is is my one key thing and the other key thing is not to let my shame get me down so 
I've learned through this process of developing this way of speaking to and interacting with my kids that actually my immature emotion is shame. I am really, really bad at dealing with shame inside of me. And um, so if there's been a big meltdown in public or at school and lots of people have witnessed it and I've got all these mixed emotions around it might be my fault or how could my child do that to me or whatever the horrible feelings are inside, my shame emotion kicks in and kicks hard. And again, over the years, I've had to learn to get better at talking to myself kindly around that. Uh, and Brené Brown, amazing woman when it comes to talking about shame. And I think the one thing that I took from her and kind of work I've done around it is the importance of not letting your shame make you feel small. So talking to my shame out loud, literally standing in a room by myself saying, shame, you will not beat me. I'm going to let myself feel bad for half an hour and then I'm going to move on. Um, so really, you know, finding a way to use language to myself that is affirmative and empathic, not just the external language that I use to my children. That is so powerful because the way you speak to yourself matters. And when you're constantly critiquing yourself and criticizing yourself, it's those are important distinctions because when you're criticizing yourself, you are telling yourself everything that you're doing wrong and that you are not enough. And it makes you start to feel hopeless. And how can you provide support to others when you can't provide any support to yourself? And then when you turn that around and you critique yourself, this is what I did. This is why I did it. And here's how I can do it better is so important because, again, criticizing yourself all the time is just heartbreaking for yourself. It is just internally devastating. And that is so important. But bringing it back to the kids, let's talk about some behaviors that vulnerable children may experience and how we can talk to them in those situations. Oh, yeah. Where to start? Um, so, so actually, I do know where to start, to be fair. I always start with rage. So um, for, for us in our house, uh, we, we didn't really move on. We didn't really move things on as a family until we had learned to better manage the rages, the meltdowns that were happening. And these were big. You know, I'm talking uh, plaster off the walls, doors off hinges, shelves off walls, broken furniture, broken toys, you know, just an outpouring of anger and rage that was directed towards the house, basically. And, um, you know, they would they would be big. They would last for like 45 minutes, an hour. Uh, they would get ugly in terms of language, um, and it was a very, very uh, exhausting and deeply upsetting time for, for both my husband and me and the kids. It was primarily uh, for my younger child, who has what's called reactive attachment disorder, 
and also unbeknownst to us at the time, he had undiagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder from an operation that he'd had. So just this huge mixture of emotions coming out. And it is very, very hard to sit and watch that happening. And what we used to try and do was contain him. So we'd like hold him. Um, it's called a safe hold. You can be taught how to do a safe hold from like a therapeutic social worker. But it was not a good feeling for him or for us to do that. He hated being touched when he was raging because he was so touch sensitive. So it was actually, it kind of made things worse. And um, we also used to have to move him to his safe place, which was a bedroom, in order to try and contain him. But that's why all the kind of damage happened to the property. And we just, we just didn't know what to do. And then as we became used to this language, what we started to do was that every time we had a meltdown or a rage moment such as this, we developed an emergency plan. And we developed it with him during a calm moment. And we developed like five steps, really simple steps that we would go through as a family to support him with it. And we also agreed some of the language that we would use during those steps. And what is so critical during a meltdown or a rage is to completely cut out your language wherever you can. This is an overwhelmed child. They, they are in survival mode. They've gone into fight or flight or freeze mode. They, they cannot take on board any rational or logical words or ideas. You know, they are not in their thinking brain. They're in their primitive brain. They're fighting, they're fighting a woolly mammoth at that point, you know. Um, so some of, the, some of the things we would do is get him to his safe place, but then instead of being in the room with him, we would close the door and we would start saying something like, Mummy's here. I am not leaving you. I will not leave you when I can see you are struggling so much. I'm going to be right outside the door. I will come in, but I'm not coming in if I'm going to get hurt. So really important to keep those boundaries. You know, because because you have to respect yourself as a parent. That's when you start getting issues with child on parent violence. If you don't respect your own boundaries, very important to keep those boundaries in place. But you keep it short, concise, firm and very, very simple. And then as the rage starts to dissipate and disappear, that's when you can start bringing in some more language wow you are so angry and it's all about something that mummy did that must be a horrible feeling for you so you start to mirror some of the emotions that they might be feeling because actually if you just said that in a kind of a nice floaty way that doesn't really reflect how they're feeling if you're like oh darling you look so angry <laughs> I'm, I'm over exaggerating but actually what we learned is that you don't necessarily want to stop your child being angry. You just want to teach them to be angry in a better way. You know, so so then you start to bring in kind of longer sentences, more language, and then you get to a point where you can do the reconnecting and restorative work with them. 
and you do not even think about having a conversation about what might happen differently or what the triggers were until everybody has settled right down again. And I guess the hard thing, Fran, and I will be totally honest with anyone listening here, is that when you have a child with such deep emotional trauma or, or challenges, you may have to do that every time they have a rage for three, four, five months before you start to see a change. But you do, you do see a change. It does start to come down. So if you can put that commitment and effort in to dealing with some of those big behaviors and, and absolutely commit to it, you will see a change. That is incredible. And I love the list of five things that we can do and coming up with that as a family and knowing how we can support our children is so important because when they feel supported, it's a lot easier for them to start to learn how to overcome and how to cope. Because when you don't feel supported, you don't feel like what you're feeling is valid. And that creates more anger and more pain. And then the part of respecting your boundaries as a parent and keeping yourself safe, that is also very important because we tend to want to do everything we can for our kids. But there has to be a line of how to keep ourselves safe and respect ourselves so that we can be there for our kids without getting that overwhelming sense of anger towards them for behaving the way that they are. So as a parent, what advice do you have of where you can start so that you can start developing that parenting language that works for your family? Yeah, I think um, that that's a great point, Fran, because different things will work differently for different people in different families. And I'm, I'm always very honest about that. Um, but I think for me, it's it's picking four or five phrases that you can just start to practice and start to become familiar with and start to just use, you know. So I, I literally used to pick one phrase a week. Um, the phrase I started with, like I said, it was it was around the anger side and it was something along the lines of, wow, you're so angry right now. And it's all about something mummy's done. Oh, it's okay to feel angry. I think I would feel angry if someone didn't let me have an extra biscuit. So literally picking one phrase, whatever it might be, and just keeping on going with it. And just seeing what the reaction is from your children. Um, or it might be a really, really simple phrase like, I wonder. So the, the brilliant thing about I wonder is you're giving your child a chance to respond and to put into words, to verbalize their feelings. But you're also giving them ideas because a little child, a four, five, six, seven-year-old child might not really be able to express how they're feeling. So if you've got a child sitting there, head down, knees up, looking all small, you could just try saying something like, oh, you, uh, you look a bit sad or maybe a bit worried. I wonder if it's about your play date later on. No, no, not about your play date. Okay. Um, I wonder if it's about um, your spelling test that you have on Monday at school. Oh, okay. It's your spelling test. 
I can imagine that's scary. What can we do to help? You know, so, so using I wonder to draw out what the real problem might be is a fantastic one for problem solving. Um, and then the, there's a couple of others um, that people will find on my um, website as well. I know you're going to pop the details up, Fran, um, but I'm thinking specifically around something like, um, I would like you to. I would like you to turn the TV off and come to the table for dinner. So the beauty of I would like you to is that it's a command. It's not a question. You're not giving them a choice. It's a command, but you're saying it in, an, in a respectful way and you're giving them a chance to respond. Now, if they didn't respond to that, you could say something like, I would like you to turn the TV off and come to the table. It's important because otherwise our dinner would go, go cold. So you can start adding bits onto it. But it also gives you a chance as a parent to remember that even a neurotypical child can take eight seconds to respond to a question. It takes eight seconds for them to process a question and react to it. Now, for, for children who are not neurotypical, who are neurodiverse, it could take them even longer to process a command or request like that. And then if they're still not doing it, you can say something like, I can see you're finding it hard to do what mummy's asked you to do. I wonder what it is that's stopping you from doing it. So it's a really good way to kind of build on things to stay, helps you to stay calm because you know that you've got something else to go to if they're not responding. So that's just a couple of examples, but start small. Start small, but keep practicing. It's like any language. You've just got to keep practicing it. Do what I did, write it down on a bit of paper. Um, I've got some ideas for products, but I am a mum to two fizzy kids and I'm massively hindered by time. But maybe sometime I'll put it all down on a bit of paper. Um, but just have a few things that you can keep with you and keep practicing. You just offered the most incredible advice because making your children feel included in the conversation and helping them to understand what they're feeling is incredibly important because you're right a lot of times as children we don't understand what we're feeling and it's okay to not understand and it's okay to feel confused and overwhelmed by your emotions but to have a parent sit there and help you understand what am I feeling and why am I feeling this way is key because then as you get older, you're able to connect your emotions and understand yourself and learn how to cope. Because when you understand the emotion, you understand where it comes from and how you can cope with it. You are in such an amazing position as an adult, instead of being in a position where I'm overwhelmed, I'm feeling too many emotions. I don't know what they are. I don't know how to figure out where it's coming from. And there's no way I'm going to learn how to cope with this. And then we fall apart. Ali, you have been absolutely incredible. Before we end our conversation, would you mind sharing your website with us? Oh, sure. It's www.sivikids.co.uk. There are free downloads on there and also some very cheap and cheerful copies of an ebook, which contain a lot of the phrases I talked about today. Um, I am mission before money. So they are very, very affordable. And also look out for some online courses coming soon. You are amazing. Thank you so, so much for joining me today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Fran.